With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. There was a time I was so afraid. So scared to do what I wanted In looking back, I can see all the mistakes that I made And I wish that I could talk to me And tell me I can change Don't be afraid Hi, welcome to Blog Talk Radio Safe Recovery. This is Monica Richardson, and I am your host. Tonight is October 1st, 2013. Wow, this year is just flying by. Well, we have a guest on tonight, a little bit different show, my friend Drew, who I ran into when I went to a young people's event out in Phoenix. Drew has been a friend of mine since the 1970s. Uh, I am going to warn everybody, this is uh, not an uh, anti-stepper episode. No, (laughs) I'm still where I'm at. But anyway, uh, I ran into him and we talked about him being on and so he's going to come on the show. I just want to remind everybody that the reason I created the show was to expose the criminal uh, sexual predatory behavior that was going on in Alcoholics Anonymous. That's why I began it. I left AA at the time. It was March 2011. And then from there, I began to uh, interview everybody from Smart Recovery, SOS, Life Ring, Women for Sobriety, Harm Reduction. Uh, it probably took me a year to find people that were in moderation that I interviewed, Stanton Peel. Lots of people with different thoughts about how people uh, can heal from problems around alcohol and drugs. And I'm really, really happy that uh, I'm here in this place where I'm at now. So I am going to bring on, I want to say hey there to the chatters. Hi there in the chat room. I almost, I got here early today to fix this problem because I almost had it again, but I I fixed it so I I can see you. I am going to bring on my guest. So here we go. Hi there, Drew. You are live. Hi, Monica. How are you? I'm good. Good. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. Just finishing up my day at work. I thought I would spend an hour with you. Ah, sounds good. 
pretty as peaceful and quiet back there where you're wherever you're sitting in your house. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm at my office, so hopefully I won't get interrupted. Oh, okay. All right, everybody, so say hi. This is my friend Drew from the 1970s. So how about we start with your story? How old were you, uh, and why did you go to AA? Um, I got sober just before my 14th birthday, so technically I was 13. I got sober on October 4th of 1977, so it will be 36 years as of this Friday. That's and a long time. I it is a long time. It is a long time. I never technically took a legal drink, and um, I'm grateful to say that um, I'm happy about that. And I, you know, as I look back on life today, as lots of conversations of you know whether I was alcoholic or whether I was just too young or too immature, and all those are very valid questions. Mm-hmm. But for me, when I examine that and I think about it, I think what would alcohol add to my life today? And the reality is, I don't think it would add much if anything, so why do I even entertain it? So oh, so, that's you, so, that so you entertain me. it? I'm not sure entertain it. I mean, it's, yeah. I think that, I think that um, as I live life as an adult, I'll be 50 in January, and, um, you know, I'm in an industry that uh, partakes in alcohol regularly. And, right. um, you know, it's there are times that, my, if I were to consume alcohol, my clients would be more comfortable. That's the truth. Mm-hmm. That's and right. I always find that very fascinating when um, they, you know, I say I don't drink. They're, there's a moment of hesitation on their sides. And as the as my experience, the people that, you know, hesitate typically consume more than the average bird does, right? And so mm-hmm. they just question their own drinking. And so, you know, if I even had a cocktail, that would probably alleviate some of their questions and allow, you know, business to continue as usual without it turning to the topic of why I don't drink. Right, right. Yeah, it's sort of a natural a natural elixir in people when they work and it's a natural part of life really, I think. Um it is. but let's talk about why you went to AA. Would you tell us a little bit about of your backstory? Sure. Um, I was born into an alcoholic home. Both my parents alcoholic um, uh, or heavy drinkers. At you know, my dad was you know who wants to pronounce everybody alcoholic, but my dad right. certainly consumed a fifth, a fifth of booze a day, plus probably a twelve pack. Uh, both from the bar business. Wow, um, yeah. Alcohol mm-hmm. was a very, very big, a big part of their life in general. My mother got sober in 1969, and our life really changed. It was a huge impact on my family. Um, Meaning that, you know, we went from two incomes living in suburbia and, you know, Southern California to living at the beach in Hermosa Beach in 1969. And, um, you know, it's interesting. When she was getting sober, our our life, our family life got better, meaning it got less um, volatile and less chaotic and less mm-hmm. violent. Uh, but there, you know, what ended was, you know, they were drinking partners and he ended up divorcing her. And we went from living the suburbia life to living, you know, fundamentally a large studio, a studio with a wall. So it was technically a one-bedroom for the four of us. And, I, you know, realistically, I was, I don't want to say abandoned, but that's the word I'll use, abandoned mm-hmm. to her sobriety because mm-hmm. she became a very active member and, um, you know, was at meetings back then. They started at 8.30, they went to 10. There was coffee before, had to show up an hour early to get a seat, and then there was coffee afterwards. So I would basically only see my mother in the mornings, uh, fostering us off to school, and I had a tremendous amount of time. And so I started kind of running the streets of the South Bay, 
uh, from the time I was six and uh, stumbled into kids that, you know, parents don't want their kids to stumble into. Right. And, um, uh, you know, they turned me on to pot and to hash and to beer, and uh, pretty soon I was uh, running with kids that hung out the backstops and the public parts. Mm, and uh, I was, um, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I had no idea that it, at six you were just running around by yourself. Did you have an older sibling or a younger one that you ran around with? I had an older sibling um, that was in my, my mother had three kids from her first marriage, and the oldest one lived with us. The other two, uh, her first son had passed, and um, uh, like literally six weeks before I was born. So there was a lot of focus and attention on me being the only boy and obviously being, um, I don't want to say the replacement son, but uh, her first son had passed. And my mm-hmm. oldest sister had, um, you know, she was resentful. She was resentful. Her mom kind of felt like she was the built-in babysitter. And oh, she was yeah. 15 huh. and 16 doing what 15 and 16-year-olds do, which is not watching their little six-year-old brother. Right, and right. So she was hanging out with boys and going to high school football games and doing all that sort of stuff. So she would make sure we were fed, basically. And then, um, you know, I was free to do whatever I wanted to do as long as it didn't cause her problems. Wow. Uh, and I think times were different back then, too, right? I mean, you know, you know, it was the times that, you know, kids came home when the street lines came on, right? And, oh, yeah, um, they definitely, I realize that, that, you know, we're pretty close in age, but we used to, Stanton Peel talks about this in his book, Addiction Proof for Your Child, that, you know, we just went out, 12 years old, 13, I had a bike, and it was in Manhattan, and we were gone all day, and you came home by 6 for dinner. And, you know, there wasn't a, a GPS attached to your bike to find out where you were going. And then, you know, there was more freedom. And I think in those that sense of the world that you didn't have to wear a helmet. And there were lots of things that I think were better about a child rearing and there were less controls. And I think children got to grow up sooner and were more mature faster. And Stanton uh-huh. talks a lot. You know, I, I think there were some good things about that, not anything about what happened to you. I don't think that was a good thing and that you were abandoned, and you were. So, because uh, I had another woman on the show, Char, who had a different situation but was forced to go, you know, to, I think, Alatad or Alatine. But so here you are in the you, – you came to live in Culver City, right, at that point? Was uh, that, that was, studio yeah, in Culver City? Uh, that, yeah, I, I lived in Culver City for a brief period when my, my mom, you know, was – you know, I think um, she was certainly as addicted to men as she was to alcohol. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, her first big love in the program, they decided they were going to sail around the world. And uh, timing didn't fit for our school schedule. So she, um, uh, I was, custody was given back to my father, who was, you know, a bar manager at the airport and worked from two to two. And, you mm-hmm. know, he was definitely not available. Um, and so, you know, once again, back to the situation where, you know, we were fed breakfast, giving her 55 cents to go to lunch at Kelly Mayer School. And, um, <laughs> and you know, that's the last I saw until the next morning, right? Wow, um, wow. And okay. so, um, yeah, and so she, she, go on. She yeah, what sailed, happens next? She had sailed off to, to Hawaii or to going around the world, and uh, they ended up actually shipwrecking on Maui, and that's how we ended up in Hawaii where I met you originally. Mm-hmm. And um, so for that year in between, we were had custody of of my uh, by my father, and you know he was um, you know my dad. The last thing he wanted they they got into a relationship you know based on alcohol, and he owned a bar in Ohio, and she was leaving her first husband and started drinking with him. That's who actually gave her her first real drink. 
Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, he used to say later, I've created a monster. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, but the last thing he wanted was another family. You know, he had he had left his family for my mom, and then pretty soon my mom was pregnant and uh, with my sister, and pretty soon they were starting it all over again, and he was just miserable. And so now he had these two kids living there. And I'm probably nine at this point, and, you know, he was a bar manager and had cases of alcohol around the house, and so my house became kind of the party house. Um, and I, that's when I first started kind of slinging, uh, doing favors and, and slinging drugs to, to you know, to, to make my score and, and to get loaded. Um, was in and around the complex. And, um, you know, it it got worse. So, you know, I think typically as most teenage um alcoholics get, you know, I did anything I had to do to uh, get loaded. So that involved stealing, it involved, you know, stealing cash, stealing stuff, um, Mm -hmm. you know, trading favors, um, and I was able to keep myself pretty much intoxicated, um, I don't want to say around the clock, but daily I was intoxicated from probably the time I was seven or eight until I was 13. So So. did you you attend school at this time? Uh, school. yeah, no, I was going to school, but I was, you know, one of those kids that showed up for attendance and then split at snack or split at lunch. Um, you know, I was a backstop kid. Well, and nobody nobody our, addressed that? Like your teachers just kind of let it happen? No, they all addressed it, but, I mean, they, you know, what could they do? I mean, it was just different back then. I got kicked out of, I think, three or four schools uh-huh. for fighting and for, you know, uh, destroying school property. You know, I was one of those kids that would show up and, you know, throw cinder blocks through the windows if I didn't like the teacher or you know, slash their tires, that sort of stuff. I was just an incorrigible kid. Yeah, you were you were angry. <laughs> yeah, really I, was angry. An angry I, was an, I was an angry child. <laughs> You're, but you know what? You were There's a lot of stuff going on there. There's reason to be angry. I mean, it wasn't like it was a lovely household that you were in at that point, those years. You know, you just had no parenting going on, it sounds like to me. None whatsoever. None right, whatsoever. there's no and, parenting. You know, as... as and as I've gotten, you know, more and more sober and, and been done more and more exploration inside the program and outside the program, meaning self-exploration, uh, you know, as I got down to, as the big book talks about causes and conditions, it wasn't about the conditions of the day that was causing me to drink. It was truly about all that stuff behind it. Um, and, you know, that's led to a, a whole life of kind of writing myself through a therapeutic process and through counseling and through seeking stuff outside of AA all the time um, that is you know, um, really trying to fix the causes and conditions because those same causes and conditions and the results of them still affect my life today, affect my relationships with people, affect the way I interact at work, all that sort of stuff. Can you explain that to me? Um, you know, how, how I does think it, that... Yeah, how does it still? Oh, well, um, as you know, and I'm totally comfortable talking about it, I mean, I was probably, I started acting out sexually when I was probably about 30, uh, 28 years sober, on the internet with pornography and pretty soon I found myself diving down this rabbit hole of pornography and, you know, lying to my significant other, um, you know, wasting time at work, losing time to work, not showing up to work because I was up till, you know, 4 o'clock the morning before, you know, acting out on, on the computer. And that same Yikes. sort of addictive behavior. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Well, you know, that's that's kind of scary. Um, uh, but I want to – so there's a whole period of your life where – I didn't. We we lost contact with each other, and I wanted to. Uh, I'm I'm sorry that all that happened, but I I think that uh, I myself got into serious therapy when I was 
maximum 20, let's see, Michael's 23, so probably soon after he was born, I had to address with um, my childhood issues. Um, mm-hmm. So I began to do that and saw that, you know, I had issues. Now, I had guy issues, you know, in the early years I was in AA, but I read other books and I saw that, you know, I was going to look at it very hard and I was going to give myself some rules and boundaries about how I would act, you know, after I saw that what I did didn't work. And so I began to implement these boundaries that I set up for myself and rules. Mm-hmm. And they did, was very, very, very helpful to me. And I sort of made them up with, you know, the help of some wisdom from Mary Lake, but then I had my own, like, thing that sort of came to me. But I'm going to ask you, so from before this happened, so you're 28 years sober and you start to act out sexually, did you go to therapy at any other point? In the, you know, did you ever go to therapy about what had happened to you as a kid and how you were abandoned yeah. and everything? Yeah, no, I, I definitely did. And, you know, I would always get to the point of, the, of kind of, um, I was in real conflict because I, you know, my mother, who was, you know, the source of many of my abandonments and things like that, many, I, right. I think, you know, the, the source of many of my causes through her own addiction and her own lack of parenting because she was raised fairly similarly back in the 30s by her mother in Oklahoma, um, meaning very independently from a kid. And... um I think, you know, I would get to the point where she did the best she could, and um, and I never got to the point where she did the best she could, and that wasn't still that still wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. And I needed to start learning how to um, seek outside counsel and outside support to, for lack of a better term, to reparent myself, right? Or to start, you know, you were intelligent enough to, to come up with boundaries and to run those past somebody, and they seemed logical, and then implement those successfully. And I would get to that point where I would get to the point of, like, discovery, and I never got to the discarding part, right? So I would get to the uncovering and the discovery part, and I'd say, oh, okay, I've got the answer. And I never got to the discarding part about now I need to recreate my, my new life and my new habits. Um, and so I never what, got when did you all do that? through that process. So what's, um, uh, what's, I, was in, I would say I started going to therapy when I was, well, you know, I went a few times more family-oriented therapy back when I was a teenager, late teenager. And then, uh, but that wasn't really for me. It was more like kind of, um, uh, it was kind of situational stuff to get through a hurdle or something. We'd get to the hurdle, get to the answer, and we'd learn how to communicate better and go on. Um, But I would say I was um, 35, 36 years sober. So I was probably uh, 23 or 24 years sober when I first started going to therapy. Right, right. And um, I saw a counselor, and, you know, I wasn't, really honest about, um, you know, I was kind of there dealing with relationship-oriented stuff, because that's where my, um, my, you know, I kind of measure my life in seven areas, and in six of them I always do pretty, I do pretty well, um, you know, work, finance, health, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. But the one area that I don't do well in is in the relationship area. And I'm, I'm, you know, I'm able to attract, you know, absolutely wonderful women in my life who are, you know, could have, I felt, I fell in love with all of them, uh, married one of them, could have married all of them. Um, mm-hmm. But it gets to a point where four or five years into my relationship, um, I withdraw. And, um, and then I start, you know, I, they're going to leave anyways, because that's what I always think, that they're going to leave. So then I just make an untenable situation that forces them to leave whether it's emotionally withdrawing, physically withdrawing, or acting out. Either one of those right, things. right. 
Um, did you ever do any Harville Hendricks work? Do you know what that uh, book is? What kind of work? So he's a guy who wrote a book called Getting the Love You Want, and Harville Hendricks, so I, I, I'm sure he was around before I went with uh, my kid's father in therapy, and what the therapist said is, because I was in AA then, and he said, I know that you, you've been taught in AA that, um, you know, you can't fix anybody, but in fact we can, we're here to heal each other, and this is a different philosophy than AA has, so what do you think about it? And Mark and I were like, yeah, sure. You know, like what, we, what we've learned there isn't working. And um, because if you look in AA, there's a lot of messed up relationships. In fact, there's a lot of single people, at least what I saw. There's a lot of, you know, people who aren't married. But uh, never mind that. Um, what it is is that you attract people who have some of the, like the negative traits as well as positive traits of your parents and then you really get to heal each other so that it is, you look at the things that, um, like mine was, that I was really insecure and I was it showed up as jealousy, right? And so mm-hmm. I didn't know why I would get so insanely jealous. And they we went back to my childhood and back to some childhood abuse and um, sexual abuse and, and incidences that were traumatic for me that... Nobody in AA ever, they were all afraid of it. Like when I talked about it, they, including Mary, I mean, they just were afraid of it. They were unprofessional. They were didn't know what they were doing. And I felt worse after telling them, to be honest, right? So because I had those issues that I was willing to talk with the women in AA about, I knew that there was something wrong with AA for me, that I had this stuff that was um, that was really getting in the way of my relationships with men and AA had no answer to that. So here I, here I, you know, some 15 years later, I'm in this work where Harville Hendricks, you, so you don't, it's not talk therapy, you actually face each other, and you start to look at how you can help each other, and instead of the way it, people talk in AA, where you tell me something about you, and then I talk about me, which is pretty narcissistic, hate the word, but it's, <laughs> it's, it's, instead of that, you, you would tell me something bad that happened to you, and I go, oh my God, Drew, that's, really sad, that's really horrible, can you tell me more? And so you start to talk to each other in a way that's not self-centered. You start to listen, you start to learn how to be compassionate towards the person when they they tell you the horrible thing that happened to them, and then you say, how can I help you? What can I do for you today that's going to make you feel safer, that's going to make you feel you know, um, better? And there's a lot more to it than that, but it's called Getting the Love You Want, and it, it's an amazing book, and I... There are people that are trained in imago therapy, and Mark and I did it. And although it, you know, it, the marriage didn't work out, but that work forever changed me. I mean, I couldn't be married to Kevin today without the work I did with Mark in, you know, the Harville Hendricks work. So that's hmm. why I was asking you. Because, no, I'll look into it. I'll look into yeah, it. Yeah, it's really beautiful work because it makes you see that, like even with Kevin, like there were times where, and he he just he does stuff naturally, like he would just say you know oh hun like he would stop and there would be this moment where i feel like somebody's just catching me you know sort of metaphorically and because you know what i mean yeah no i i I get it i think you know i mean that's certainly the 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 conversation described with other a people is certainly a a fairly normal conversation from my experience in a is you know that we it's that point of trying to uh it is very narcissistic but it's almost like a point to try and make create identification and um and you know whether it's lack of training or whether it's lack of understanding or whether it's true narcissism I, you know I, I don't know but i do what i do know is that it never really um gets back on track to kind of 
the focus is on me and dealing with my immediate pain right now, right? Right, right. Um, but uh, so, I mean, at the point of even some of the um, the chat room, and I can see people are saying, someone said he sounds more normal than the steppers I've heard in meetings. That's a compliment. Thanks. Some of the things that, uh, so, you know, a lot of us, uh, compared to where I came from, was that I don't believe that it's an addiction. I mean, I remember going to BDA meetings and stuff, and, there were points in in those groups where we were reading other books. Like there were not, they weren't DA books. They were other books that people wrote about how to you know develop, uh, how to create money in your life, how to change habits, how to deal with it at every level. Um, you know, simple basic level. You're at the feng shui spiritual level, and um, I saw the labeling. It was the first time in that group that I began to think that it was very negative to think of this. And someone said, "Well, you know, it's all an addiction." That, you know, it's like a ship, you're on the Titanic. And I remember looking at this woman I sponsored, and I was like, I, I don't really I don't really feel that way. But um, but I think if you don't address a core issue, that it's certainly, like I saw women with a lot of time, Drew, that never did anything outside. Like, they didn't do mm-hmm. outside spiritual work, they didn't do therapeutic work, they didn't go get to see a counselor, they didn't do self-care, you know, so they didn't get massages, yep. they didn't exercise. And so they didn't take care of themselves. Yep. And I mean, that's you know. what I'm finding now is, you know, I mean, for me, where I started, I think, um, I started going to ACA, um, which is, you know, something I went to, God, probably at this time, I, I, was probably, I was probably 25, 28 years ago, something like that. And I remember going to the meeting in Kailua, and I remember the feeling as I walked away. I stayed. I was very uncomfortable at the meeting because mm-hmm. I felt an immense amount of betrayal to my mother. Because mm-hmm. she was the person, you know, so I'm, you know, to kind of flip back to my story, what happened is I ended up going back to live with my mom. Um, right. Had six weeks of kind of sobriety after my dad had passed, um, naturally, when I first met you. Um, wow. Oh, so he just died at that point, Drew? So he, I, yeah, he, yeah, yeah. Go back to telling the story. So he passed, and that's what brought you to Hawaii? Yeah, so, yeah he died on August 31st of 1977. I got sober in October. And uh, we uh, didn't know what to do. She didn't know what to do. She didn't know if she was going to stay on the mainland. And, you know, somebody said, I think you need to go feel where you're safe, and that's Hawaii. And so that's where we ended up in, back in Hawaii. Mm. And for six weeks, we, we hadn't seen each other in three years because she had been chasing yet another man up to Alaska. And um, Oh, yeah, that guy uh, with the beard. Remember him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the iron worker. And mm-hmm. um, it was, um, you know, we got there, and her life, as, as many people's lives back where we used to go to the office, right? Everybody in the office either, you know, didn't need to work, right? You were retired and didn't need to work or being taken care of by somebody. Or you were, you know, or you were, um, or you couldn't work, right? There were people who just didn't get those skills back yet, hadn't redeveloped them in new, new and sobriety. Right. And, you know, went to went to the office every day, went to, you know, dinner at Coco's, went to a meeting, went back for coffee at Coco's, right? I mean, it was that right. was the thing. It was was really a, um, the first time in my life that I didn't want to drink or use, and it felt like it was kind of mystical and magical. And um, then she made, you know, the kind of bright adult decision to put me back in school because it kind of makes sense, right, that right. a 13-year-old school. And, um, you know, I was afraid and uh, went to the ABC store and stole a six, an eight-pack of Mickey's malt, Big Mouth Malt Liquor, and I dropped over the wall. Um, literally next to the backstop, and there was my people, right? One had a right. small bong, and the other one had some beer, and right. we were in heaven. And this mm-hmm. is all before class. And the very first day, I got loaded before school, got loaded at snack, 
got into a fight, uh, got into another fight at lunch, uh, got totally beat up by a Samoan guy, and I walked into my fifth period class, humiliated, angry, loaded, and the desk, you know, I walked in late and picked up a desk and threw it at the teacher. And um, I left, I ran and, you know, jumped the fence, and I was running all the way home. And I went into my room, I didn't come out. And uh, the next morning there was an intervention with, you know, Jerry C. and and Surfer Run. She brought them both over to talk to me. And, you know, she, you know, although she hadn't been in my life, she was very aware of my life. So she was aware of how many arrests I'd had, been aware of the foster home, been aware of all this sort of stuff, and said, you know, I think that you have a problem with drugs and alcohol. And, you know, you've got three options. Option A is you can stay here and I will feed you and I will clothe you and do my oblig- obligatory duty until you're 18 years old, you know. Um, but, you know, you got to go to school. you got to get yourself out of jail. You're not going to show up for teacher, teacher parent nights. I'm not doing anything to support the life you're choosing to live. Um, you can leave and I won't report you as a runaway. And Jerry said, you know, you could hang out in front of hulas. I'm sure you can make a living, um, which I had, you know, I'd already started oh, that's doing. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, exactly. I don't like Jerry. Right. I mean, he's part of my, you know, yeah. bad story. But yes, yeah. <laughs> yes, I know. And I had start. I had already started doing that, trading my body for drugs and alcohol from the time I was probably 11, with, um, you know, alcohol and drugs, anyways. And um, that didn't seem like an option to me. Um, yeah. And the third one, which seemed like the easier, softer way at the time, was that they would all do anything in their power to help me get clean and sober. And that was a Tuesday, October 4th, and they took me to the Koala Street Club to the 1145 meeting. And and I'd been in hundreds of meetings prior to that. And when I raised my hand, I identified as that I, I was powerless over drugs and alcohol. And um, uh, it was a different experience for me. You know, what was being read and what was being said seemed to apply. And, um, um, you know, it's been kind of my life ever since. Now, you're saying something in a way that I'm going to ask you a question about it. You're saying it seemed to apply. So, the, I mean, it's, what happened to me? Yeah. you have an answer or a response to that? Well, when I was listening, like when I would listen to you back then, or I listened to Doug, or I'd listen to, you know, my mom or any of those people, right? It always seemed like a good idea for them. If I drank like them, I would do something different, right? If, uh-huh. You know, and it never seemed to really apply to my life. But during kind of, you know, back, it would today be considered an intervention, but back then it was it was simply mother-son therapy, right? I think she was just, I just thought she was trying to get me to, you know, conform. Uh-huh. And... But when I listened to it, when they said, you know, look, tell me about every single time you'd been arrested, and I went through the litany of that, I was loaded every single time. Right. right. Or I was I was trying to get loaded every single time. I wasn't stealing for food. I was right. stealing for drugs and alcohol, right? Right. Um, which is not normal for a nine-year-old, right? The first right. time I got arrested, I was probably seven for purse snatching. Um, and, you know, the intent we were going to do with that money was to go score drugs. But you had no parents. Like, you had no parents that were parenting you. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, I mean, no, no, I don't disagree. Right, right. But, I mean, I remember I remember you, and I remember, you know, that you didn't, you, you did want to uh, be stopped, you know, which I related to. I had enough, you know, for then and, you know, for, like, yeah. God, three decades, whatever. But, so you did that. The thing that, Stanton Peel said to me was that uh, in one interview that I did with him was that well you know most people now and and your story is actually 
worse than I, I'd say it's worse than mine at an earlier age for sure. Now that I'm hearing it again all these years later, you didn't always talk about. At least I don't remember you talking about those kind of the details in in the sense you are, but that it, it really was horrible. And I think somebody would want to stop completely and want to be abstinent. Why not? Like you know what I mean? It's sort of life wasn't good, and it's upset, you seem to get into trouble every time you did it. But that even kids who you know, just drinking like I drank and get drunk, um, you know, every weekend that the teenagers grow out of that. To continue to the, the the conversation that, you know, I love that I'm having with somebody who, you know, isn't sort of where most of my listeners are is that I think you grow out of it. I think that someone who's that young, um, uh, and maybe there's some people that can't. Um, and you and I were people who were very, very young that I think that we... You do grow out of it, and to label yourself uh, forever in recovery, like I hate that. No one used that terminology when we were in AA, you know, back then. We were in recovery. It says we have recovered from a seemingly hopeless disease. It says we have recovered. Like that part of the book, like what did they really, I don't really care because I don't really like the book anymore. But, I mean, <laughs> that's, you know, it's kind of like what I was told. You know, Drew, if, the, if Tom Catton, and the people that I liked, that I met, if they would have come at me, I was a very different experience than you and said, look, Monica, you know, you're really fucked up, you know, and you're broken and you're going to have to, and, and no matter what you think right now, you're going to have to believe that first part of the first step 100% or you're never going to be really welcome here and that you're going to need to come here for the rest of your life and you're going to have to call yourself an alcoholic, even though like you're, you're kind of, you know, you feel like you are, but sometimes you don't, you wonder, you hear these stories and you go, God, I wasn't like that. You know, I God, I should run the fuck out of here. I remember at the Ilikai that one year, I was like, ah, out the back door, yeah. you know, as they were telling these horror stories from the 1950s, I didn't relate. But if they would have said that to me, I would have said, fuck you. I don't want what you have. I don't want this. this Can you cold. say that on the radio? What? Can you say it on the radio? It's blog talk internet radio. It's like Bill Maher. Think of it that way. It's like oh god, I, I, god I've, I've been editing my words. <laughs> oh my, you've been sounding so polite, but it's okay. I mean, I try to only say a couple of swear words, you know, here and there, because it doesn't. Okay. It's not great to swear too much. But I, you get my point. Like it was all. It was really a soft sell to me. It wasn't. You were hammered on the head. You were given the street or here. You know, I made a choice yeah. to go there. And Tom was like, oh, take what you like and leave it. Well, how many meetings should I go to? Well, as often as you like, whatever you need. Nobody ever said, where's your well, sponsor? The, Get a sponsor, you know? Well, and they're always done in double talk, right? They say, you know, take what you like, leave the rest. But, you know, there are no must in A, but they're, you know, you know, we suggest, it's only suggestions, but we suggest it like, you you know, you pull a parachute, right? I mean, it's, there's always, I think, very much dual messages that go on here. That, and, <laughs> I, and I do find A quite very passive aggressive, but there's one good thing about being a long time sober and being active is, you know, I can, uh, I tell people they're full of shit all the time. Like, like verbally, right? I mean, I just, you know, I think that what's coming out of their mouth is shit, and what's been said in this meeting is bullshit. And you know, um, you know, and I, and you know, when you told me about your latest kind of um, adventure that you're on, right? And I really strongly believe. I think, and I say it constantly, it's one of the most dangerous places I've ever met in my life because there's perpetrators there, there's predators there. That's all the truth. Mm -hmm. You know, um, but it's not mutually exclusive. It doesn't mean there's not recovery there. It doesn't mean there's not help there. It doesn't mean there's not love there. It doesn't, you know, they're not mutually exclusive. And it takes 
a good core of people around any person to be able to kind of separate the you know the wheat from the chaff. I mean, so for me, it's you know I I I vet my people very very you know closely. I don't just bring any these people in there. I think they're crazy. I mean, I yeah. I you know I don't I don't think it's such a safe place at all. Mm. I appreciate your support. I mean, I told, uh, I mean, I I think that's what it began about, and now I'm glad that they acted crazy at the Westside District because it's what, you know, I think that my, my family members, my own, you know, close family members made me look at AA differently, uh, my son, my father, and I'm kind of glad that they were nuts and they wouldn't let us go further than the group, really, you know, to talk about safety, because it made me see them for who they really are today. I was living in fantasy land, like well, I was trying to find AA from the 70s. You know, those I was trying yep. to find. It doesn't exist. Even people in Hawaii said to me, Monica, like, it's gone. Like, it's not. It's gone. The AA that you knew, that we all knew, it isn't just you. It isn't just LA. It's not here either in Hawaii. Yeah, no, you know? it's definitely not. Right, right. It's definitely. It's different. So, can we let's go, so your story, which I'm finding out so much more stuff. Um, so your trauma. Now um, you certainly had uh, neglect, right? And stuff. Yes, but I've, you know, you don't have to tell me what it was. Yeah, yeah. Did you have any trauma that you finally, like, you know, realized that you had, like early childhood? Well, child? I mean, I was I was sexually abused by an older sister. Um, you know, that was one of my, I was, uh, physically abused and and emotionally abused by my grandparents, no doubt about that. My first memory is, you know, one of my, my grandfather's, you know, kind of force feeding me and, you know, manhandling me at like, and it's, you know, one of those early memories, just the flash, I don't know how old it was, 18 months or whatever it was, right? Yes. But forcing me, forcing his will on me, right? Um, Right. You know, my... Um, you know, one of my grandfather's favorite things was swinging a, club club, a, a, a golf club at my head, right? I mean... Oh, my God. Um, you know, it was just... It, it was weird. It just really was weird. Yeah. You know? and, and when did so that memory I, I come think, back to you? When was that memory, like, finally real to you? Um, I would say that the the, the childhood... You know, the, the memory of my grandfather, I think that's why I never liked him. Yeah. I never liked my, my, my mother's father or my mother's stepmother. I mean, it was just always a very negative environment to me and always very, very uh, emotionally painful and jarring for me to, to be around that. And, and I don't know if it was the abuse that she experienced by them or the abuse that I was experiencing by them, but, you know, I, I think that we had untreated dysfunction, alcoholism, whatever you want to call it, you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, way back then. And, you know, and that was who, you know, when I left the foster home, my dad put me into a foster home after about a year and a half. Uh, one of my... Um, Uh-oh, there's a that. phone. One of my... <laughs> no, no, I, I just... I, just, I, just I, I quieted it. Um, I They put me into a foster home when I got kicked out of one of the schools, and I went to the I went to foster home for about nine months. Voluntarily, they just dropped me off, right? Which is a wow. very odd experience. Oh, and my I was, God. Um, I was 11, Right, and oh you know God, it was diametrically, it was diametrically opposed. Right, I go from this kind of modern day alcoholic kind of family because he'd married an alcoholic as well by then, um, but you know a normal family. At least there was two kids, and each of us had our own bedrooms. So living in this foster home with a multitude of kids, and none of them had parents in this you know pastoral family took in, 
and living a completely Christian life, like reading, you know, Rin Tin Tin books around the the, the fire at night. I mean, it was just right. so bizarre. Oh my God! And um, you know, a couple of kids had me- were mentally ill and retarded. It was just like it was like being in a, a movie. It was terrible. Wow! Um, but I got out of that after about nine months. And then went home for about three or four months, got into another fight, got kicked out of another school, shattered this kid's kneecap. And um, uh, they took me to my grandparents' house and they were finding another school for me and they never picked me up again. And that's after my dad had been diagnosed with cancer. And so the next nine months I lived from that was probably from January until August. So the next eight months I lived with my grandparents on their porch. Uh, They had a back porch and enclosed patio with like a stoop that I slept in. Because uh, they didn't trust me in the house, wow. and uh, right, rightly or wrongly, they didn't trust me in the house. The reality was, I was rifling their booze and going through their pills and um, stealing their money. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. you know, I'm mm-hmm. not sure, but it was uh, rightfully or wrongly. But, but still, you know, that's that's the way I was living from you know, 13. All you know, all all that year I was, I was living out there. So. Wow, that's pretty stuff. Tough stuff, but it makes sense what you said about the older sibling, um, which which turned out to be the uh, I, I'm just going to call it um, sex issues around sex and intimacy. And rather than calling you a sex addict or a sex addiction, I just think it's crazy. It's behavior, but you had an issue. You were abused by an older female sibling. That's where it begins. What I learned from a really good no, therapist. No, totally. Right. Yeah, well, and, and I'd been yeah, I'd been sexually abused before that by a next door neighbor as well, a guy. So I mean, my my orientation towards seeking comfort via sex is very. I mean, it, it it's it's black and white, right? It's one plus one equals two. There's there, it's a no brainer, and I see that. But it's you know for me it's still the, getting to the underlying causes and conditions when they start coming up. Is I never I never got through them. I would identify them, I would acknowledge them, but I never processed through them and got to the discarding phase of, you know, what am I going to replace this behavior with? What, when this feeling comes up, what do I do instead? You know, do I talk to somebody? Do I, you know, write about it? Do I, you know, it's not just like turn over to God and wait for it to change. I really, there's, there's effort that needs to go on constantly. Because if not, I'm going to seek to anything that's going to comfort my feelings. That's just who I am. Right. So if it's this, food, this, this, if it's so- nicotine, if it's... You know. mm-hmm. um, the thing that I have a problem with, I, I made myself go see uh, the movie, Thank You for Sharing. Uh, and, you know, when I went into therapy and it was dealing with childhood abuse, both I had similar experiences, not with a grandfather, but with my earlier memories of being really uh, manhandled, but it was by an, an elder aunt, a great aunt. And uh, mm-hmm. when my baby was born, my first child, and I was caring for him as a very little infant, I would start to have flashbacks, these really violent, horrible flashbacks. And, you know, when you're taking care of a baby, uh, you're like, how could somebody do this? And so um, I, I began to unravel at that point. That's the way I put it. I was like 15 years sober, 33 years old, and taking care of Michael and, and, and seeing, and, and it was coming up. There was no stopping it. There was no stuffing it. I wasn't interested in stuffing it. Um, I didn't smoke. I didn't over. I didn't do anything, you know, except mom. And my marriage was not doing too well. But I think that uh, to get at that cause, that that thing that, uh, that I had to go there. I had to go. If I found a great therapist who dealt only with that. And oh, here's what I wanted to say in relation to essay. 
and um, is that the, that's when I saw another level of the book as being hogwash. So I have a real problem, and I'm going to let you you know counter this after I'm done. That to use the 12 steps, so I would go to meetings and hear people talk about being sexually abused as children or even, you know, physically abused. And I would say, whoa, 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 wait a second. Like, this, this, these 12 steps were borrowed from the Oxford movement anyway, you know, but that they were used by two middle-aged men for the stopping of drinking alcohol, period. That's all this was meant for. This was not, children are never responsible. They're victims. If you're a child and you're abused, in any way, you're a victim. And AA yep. and its, its little components have no healing. And have, th- that program should be for any drunk or any addict, maybe when they're new. But you should never apply these fucking 12 steps and any of this thinking to childhood abuse. That's not what they meant. Even Bill Wilson, if he were alive today, would say, Whoa, what the fuck are you guys doing? This was for alcohol and drugs. This isn't for somebody like you who was harmed as a kid sexually or you know by a couple people and me also by a number of people that the healing and then in AA so always telling you that you know you're supposed to forgive people well actually in childhood sexual abuse they tell you you don't need to forgive to heal there's no forgiving needed right I mean and so there was a lot of so I would go to meetings rarely then just to kind of you know share my newfound you know healing that I was having and that then went I over really well. <laughs> yeah, well, it did. <laughs> I guess not with the predators, but um, there was always young women who would come up and ask me to sponsor them, and they were women who had been abused, and I would sponsor them and become really close to them, and you know, for a number of years, and then become their friends, and then move on. But so, how are you? I was like, you know, I remember when you, when you first, you know, told me, and I was like, just oh, well, you'll go get great therapy, and then. Then you told me that you went to that fucking essay group. I was like, "Wow, what are you doing?" <laughs> so, tell me, you know, how are you wrapping well, that for around me, your head? Um, for for me, I saw it. You know, uh, I went there. I think for primarily for identification, and also probably to um, try and save my relationship, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that I was seeking help. Um, but but for me, it, it's the same causes and conditions, right? So kind of how that plays out in my head, let me go a little bit into my relationship story. So what happens is when, when I meet a woman that, you know, it's romantic, it's fun, it's fantastic, it's passionate, it's it's great. And then when they cross that line and become family, um, meaning that they're my chosen person, right? right. Um, I start shutting down because my chosen people have always left. So mm. it's just a matter of time till they leave. Oh, wow. Right, right. B, I don't, I don't have sex with my family, so I shut down there. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's like that constant need to feel the need for family um, gets kind of transferred to them inappropriately. And what I need to do is keep that as my partner in life, my chosen partner in life, my, you know, my romantic interest. I need to keep that charged and keep focused on that from that aspect of it. And I need to unwrap my kind of natural thinking. So what happens is I get in this comfort place where, you know, they're going to leave. So let me start shutting down. Let me start pulling back. I don't, you know, screw family anyway, so I'm not going to stop doing that. And pretty soon it's like, you know, I'm in this completely loveless and sexless relationship. And um, and I've shut down. And that's, um, you know, just really, it's been, you know, I've, 
I've had fantastic relationships in my life that I, that my causes and conditions that have been undealt with for many many years um, have destroyed. And so, you know, when I went to SAA, I went there primarily for identification because I was acting out and I needed to stop the compulsiveness of acting out and just hearing it talked about was useful. But for me, SAA, my experience with it, and I don't believe this is true in every area, but certainly here in, do they know where I'm from? Can I say where I'm from or is that not good either? Oh, yeah, you can say whatever, yeah, we do whatever oh, you want. So, so, so SAA in Las Vegas is um, is very, very small, which I understand it is in many places. It's the same core group of people. It's... Um, and for me, it's they always stay very focused on kind of one and two and never got to the recovery steps, to the mm. stuff about really trying to get to the underlying causes and conditions. Mm. And so for me, I found that through therapy and through ACA, which I, which I stumbled into at the direction of somebody in AC, at, at SAA, and he said, dude, I listened to your story and you need to be here. And so I went finally, and I went back, and I was in a place where I could hear. And, um, and for me, it was... I believe it's the, my core issues with everything, and it's not necessarily forgiving them. It's yeah. it's owning that I wasn't that I never took the ball up when I was old enough to do it to start reparenting myself. I didn't have that skill. I didn't have that insight. I didn't have any of that. And so the last three years or four years that I've been actively in ACA, and when I say actively, I go to you know probably three meetings a month. Mm-hmm. I'm very aware of self care. I do a lot of, of I put a lot of effort into self care of taking care of me, taking the time with me, um, you know, acknowledging my good things like you would do with a child, um, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And when I feel that sort of stuff coming up where I want to rebel, I want to start, you know, rebellious behavior, whether I'm at work or with a client or, you know, in a relationship or whatever, I, you know, I have learned how to talk myself out of that. And I'm beginning to see the results of that in my personal life. And it's helped me tremendously in my AA life as well. I'm still an active AA person. I mean, I go to, I go to three to four meetings a week. I sponsor people I'm sponsored. You know, I really strongly believe in, in that AA is a path, not the only path, is a path to sobriety. And there's, I think there's certain personality types that connect to it. And, um, and the reason I think I keep attending is um, partly familiarity. And partly because I believe that, you know, that I need to carry the message that, my message, which is, you know, that you can get sober young, you can stay sober, you can make this a way of life, you, you can, you know, have a successful life that, I, you know, I, I'm, uh, I'm I'm successful in business, I'm successful in most areas of my life. Right. I talk about that. I talk that this is, you know, don't trust everybody in these rooms. Most people in these rooms are complete and utter fuckwits. And you know, don't have business sharing any of it with anybody, and right, to be very right. mindful. And I think that if all of us of that mindset leave, then what's left there is what's left there. And so, you know, although I do get a lot out of it, um, I still believe I'm there as a service. Um, I'm really. We have about nine minutes left. Um, we're talking to Drew, my friend in Las Vegas, and uh, he's coming up. I guess. Uh, what did you say? In three days. You're gonna have you're gonna yeah, celebrate a birthday thirty six years. Thirty six years and um you know, I uh was thinking you know, I was listening to you and the part that happened to me and I guess this was what sent me out was when you said, um, you know, share this way of life and I was like, um, I didn't I didn't wanna be in the rooms with those people anymore. Like I looked around the rooms and there were so few people that I related to and would have had coffee with even 
that I realized I didn't belong there anymore. And I didn't fit in AA at all. Like I looked around that general service meeting on that Sunday morning when I'm trying to talk about safety and to get so much kickback. And even in my women's group um, that was supportive and we voted it and made the statement read that I looked around the room and kind of went through what I did when I was new and I ran out of that conference in the Ilakai when I said, I'm not one of these people. And that I don't, my message to carry into the world is the message of what I've been through and I guess this right now, you know, but so the question is, is that like why have to, you know, why constantly to go back there? There's like if if somebody, did somebody tell you that you were going to have to go there forever and do that? Uh, no, I just believe that, I really believe in passing it on. I mean, if all of us leave there, then who's going to be there to do that? It's it's really what I, it's, it, you know, it's, it's, it's what I believe. Right. You know, I, I believe that as much as, you know, and, and I think that, you know, I hear your perspectives, and I would say just go to other meetings, because I think that your your voice needs to be heard as well, but, you know, I'm not here to try and convince you to go to AA, and, you know, you're not here to <laughs> convince me not to, <laughs> but, you know... You know, for, for me, I think that I think that you know, do I, I haven't done general service in years. I think that that's there's a lot of people that deserve to be. The last time I did general service, our central office here was getting ready to to disenroll certain meetings that talked about drugs, and wow. I you know became an immediate GSR and went down there and told them how full or excuse me inter, intergroup rep and, right. and told them how full of shit that they were and said you know look. Has he, you know, I, I went as far as saying, had these books been audited here? Maybe you've just been here too long. Because the guy's been in place for he's been he's been in place for twenty five years. He needs to get a real job. He needs to get stop, you know, leeching off of A, spirit of rotation, all that sort of shit. It's right. like it's just fucking crazy. The same people there last time went there probably six or eight years ago, and they were going to do something else stupid. You know, I mean that it needs to be refreshed. Right. In general right, services, right. you know. But well, they did come is, out with that, that. You saw that AA grapevine thing. I think there's a pamphlet coming out, right? Oh, because they made a pamphlet. A pamphlet coming. I think oh, they. Good. I think they. I think they indicated that a, a pamphlet was going to be, um, was going to be released or something. Anyways, I hope yeah, so. Yeah, it, yeah. So everybody who's out here, there's a lot of chatters in the room, and um, that that uh, front page that you sent to me, that the grapevine printed went sort of viral on the orange papers on all the anti-supper. Um, uh, blogs that there are, and uh, people were talking about it. Well, that, that's good. I think it, it needs to happen, and they need to, though, have workshops because it's the workshops that empowers the people who still want to be there, and it scares away the predators, which are, you know, the guys who are really, you know, they're just praying. And, um, yeah. Uh, I was shocked. I watched your movie trailer. Yeah. And um, I was shocked at some of the stories. I was just shocked. Like, I think that everybody there on a court card is there for a DUI. And I realized I would, that's, like, that's so not true. And then I started like putting my logical mind to it. I'm like, God, you've just been deluding yourself. Truth the truth. So <laughs> I, after that, there was a court card in our basket. I recommended to our home group that we not sign those any longer. <laughs> and wow. I asked the person, Good. what are you here for? Good for you. Good for you, yeah. You know, I'm, you know the last thing that I need is, you know, you know, I go to a fairly uh, a younger person. It's it's a mix, but there's you know because the name it's called Pulp Fiction, and so it attracts a lot of young people. And right. you know, the last thing I need is some you know scumbag 
you know, predator hanging out there trying to to do that, right? It's just not cool. No, it's not. And one of the things that um, Gunther, who's one of the bloggers, said, you know, and even uh, some young people that I know, uh, if, if you were to get rid of the literature and make it a sober club, like so people, I think that essence of what, uh, you know, AA, what what did I like about AA back in the 70s? Well, it was like we put on dances together. We went to the beach together. We had picnics, uh, you know, last-minute picnics at uh, Alamoana Park. Um, and we played basketball together. Uh, those were the things. They really weren't sitting, uh, you know, studying the big book, although, you know, I did it. But all that stuff still exists, Monica. It still, all still exists. It's just I'm not doing it, and you weren't doing it. There's mm-hmm. others that are doing it. I don't know. There really are. I mean, look at all. I mean, look at those. The, I mean, when we ran into each other at Ikipa, right? I mean, those things they do. You know, ten or twelve events a year. They really do. It's just that as my life got more full, I had less time to hang out with AA people. So I go to meetings. I have coffee. I go to dinner before, maybe after. You know, I, but you know, for me, there's certain disciplines I do every day. I talk to somebody in AA every day. Usually, they call me quite honestly. Um, you know. But if by, by the end of the night, or as I'm on my way home, if I haven't talked to somebody, I you know send a text. I have some sort of exchange around with somebody sober because I remember there's a fuller life than just me and my business, right? You know. I, so, do any of you have any questions, or is this not a question and answer thing? Yeah. Does anybody have a question out there? Eight one eight four seven five ninety two eleven, or feel like asking it uh, in the chat room? And I think there was one way back here. There was a question. There was a question early on. Let's see if I can. If it's still here. Um, no, it's so far back that I can't see. Let's see if somebody wrote one. I saw a video today. Um, what happened here? I'm sorry, I'm in the chat room trying to find. Okay. Um, what about the God stuff? Gunther wrote, God st- what do you mean, Gunther? What about the God stuff? A lot of God stuff. Well, this is why I think we need the other choices. I'll say that, Gunther, and I'll say it to Drew, that when I found that there were six other free options that were secular and not religious, and that how many people I know are Muslim and Jewish and atheist now, like, uh, that yeah, it, it's real serious. Um, oh, okay. So they said, God stuff, and if you leave, will you drink? Those are the two questions. We have two and a half minutes. Go ahead, Drew. <laughs> <laughs> I don't. I, the, the God stuff for me is, you know, I believe in a power greater than myself, and I believe that, you know, something had to create all this, and so I, I, I don't have a definition of what that is. And uh, but I do. I know that I feel better when I do some level of practice of prayer and meditation. Whether I'm doing that to myself, to, to you know, the great mystical power, to you know, Allah, to God, I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. What I do know is I feel better, and, and that's what it's about. Is about ways for me to make me feel better. And if I leave, I would drink. I. Uh, I don't know. I, know. I think just... that I think I, I think I don't want to even go venture down that path, right? I mean, so I I know for me that uh, as I look at my life today, I have more to risk by by risking alcohol. I mean, five months ago I didn't smoke at all. Now I smoke cigarettes and you know vape on these things, right? I mean, I have a so got the vape, got the e-vape. I, I do. And so, um, you know, it's like, I mean, I do I do many things compulsively, whether it's work, whether it's sex, whether it's a relationship, whether it's people, whether it's talking. You know, I, you know, we've been talking for an hour. It feels like we've been talking for 10 minutes, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so. Well, it's been really, really great. Thank you for answering all of my questions and uh, everybody else's questions. And that's really been nice, a really, really nice conversation. 
and uh, I look forward to talking to you some more. And thank you, everybody. Thank you so much, Drew. I'll talk again soon. Thanks for having me, Monica. It's a blast. Okay. Good luck, and, and, um, and I really hope the movie comes off great. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, bye-bye. So, everybody, that's it for tonight. Thank you so much. Uh, I thought it was a great show, really interesting uh, conversation that we had with Drew. And we will be back next week with uh, Jason, who has Recovery Truth Number 1. He has over 20 videos and over 20,000 views. And so I'm going to have somebody on next week, and then I'll be taking a break for uh, a week while I'm making my film. I'll do a show every other. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And thanks again, Drew, so much for uh, coming on tonight, sharing our story with you, and we'll see you all next week. And see you on the blogs. Bye-bye. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.